And good morning, Granite Creek Community Church. You're watching me on the screen this morning. Uh, here's the reason why. Uh, last week, one of our key leaders tested positive for COVID and uh, I was exposed. And I came down with what feels to be a really bad summer head cold. And so I was tested and my results came back inconclusive, which probably means that I did not stick that thing up my nose far enough. My wife tested negative, and uh, the only problem is, is that she tested negative once before and still had COVID. And then my daughter, her test has not come back yet. And so out of uh, an abundance of caution, I've decided to record my sermon. Uh, I, I did this message about an hour before you're hearing it, so it, it's fresh for this morning. And truth be told, I, uh, I, I was just going to come in and do the sermon. And I wrestled with the Lord last night and make one I prayed about it. And uh, yeah, I was just going to do it. And then I woke up in the middle of the night and I was looking at the local news and this great restaurant that we visit in Lake Arrowhead called Papagayo's. They had somebody that came down with it and they shut their restaurant down. And so I guess you could say in a weird way that was that was my answer. And I woke up this morning and I just like I feel like this is what I needed to do. And uh, and so here we go. So we're going to go ahead and just jump on in into the sermon and in our series on everything you need to know you learned in Sunday school. And in this series, we are going through a few themes. We're getting a general survey, uh, a, a broad picture, big look at the scriptures and how they apply specifically to our everyday life. And we're hearkening back to some of the classics from uh, our Sunday school class. So today, we're talking about one of the great heroes of the Bible. Everybody knows this guy. Everybody knows this story. But hopefully today, we will see it in a fresh new light. Now, over the past few weeks in the series, we're talking about God's kingdom here on earth. And despite the fall, despite uh, losing everything, God has given us a way out and he's given us specific promises. Promises not only for the Jewish people, but promises for you and me. One of those promises is that God in his goodwill has, has promised you a people. We're going to have a people. You're never going to be alone. You're going to have a church, a family, a tribe, if you will, that you can call your own. And that is one of God's promises to you. The second is a little more hard for us probably to get our heads around, but God promises his people, the Israelites, a land, tangible, physical land. In the Levant, Palestine, Canaan, what we call today the modern state of Israel. Now, although you and I can't, uh, well, we could, but most likely we're not going to move to Israel and set up shop. But God does have a promise for resources for you 
and maybe it is physical real estate but he has made a way and he has provision resources literally locked up into heaven waiting for you to unopen it god has promised you a land and the third promise that we talked about is that god has promised you a blessing it's different than resources it's different than stuff but god has promised to let you have a life that you don't deserve that's full of blessings it's very exciting to be blessed doesn't mean that you're rich. To be blessed means that you are saved by the grace of God. Now in this series, I've hinted at a fourth promise. A fourth promise inside of God's kingdom that is equally as important. I've hinted at it, and the secret of it it's hidden in the name of the title of this sermon. God's kingdom and man's kingdom. So have you guessed at it yet? Do you know what this fourth promise that God gives us is? The fourth promise is the promise of a king. You cannot have a kingdom without a king. And so God promises us a king. A ruler to rule over and to administrate the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's an incredible promise. It's one that we still struggle with today. And the ancients struggled with it as well. And yet we see it unfold uh, in scriptures and it encourages us and empowers our lives. We have a hint of this kingship from the very first day of the fall. If you remember from Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity, this is God speaking to Eve and Adam, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now he's talking to Satan directly, the serpent, the serpent of old. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he which is Eve's descendants will crush your head and you will strike his heel and so this is a prophetic foreshadowing of the future king that will crush the head of Satan we see it at the very first day secondly we see another foreshadowing of a of a king when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel. It is that structure, the administrative structure that God has placed on earth to rule heaven on earth, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says this specific and very special blessing to his son Judah. This is Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter. It is a ruling staff, a royal staff. Nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet until he whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Before anything gets unfolded, hundreds of years away from a monarchy, Jacob prophesied that Judah 
will start a royal line and that all nations will be obedient to the descendants of Judah. It's a very big deal. And then finally, another foreshadowing prophetic word of the coming future king is in Deuteronomy 17, while the children of God are wandering around in the desert right after the Exodus. God says to his people this, when you enter the land that your Lord, your God is given you and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now that's a very important point. Make sure you appoint a king over you in whom God chooses. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he will write to himself on a scroll and copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. And so he's going to basically, he's going to have the Bible in his hand and the scepter in the other hand. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and all these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and not turn from the law to the right or to the left, and then his descendants will reign a long time forever over the kingdom of Israel. So let's just take a moment and think about that, because God is not only promoting a monarchy, he is promoting his kingdom heaven on earth it is god's will that he rules that kingdom you ready for this with a theocracy a theocracy is even a little bit harder for us americans to understand and accept than a monarchy we don't like our monarchies uh probably we really don't want to like a theocracy but god ruling from heaven through a king as his will and this is what we need to be praying for. Now, we're going to talk about the United Kingdom, the United Monarchy. And this is the great story of, of Camelot, of King Saul and David and Solomon. Uh, we had our, all of our classic literature stems, all of our classic literature in, in, in terms of royalty stems from this very story. It's, it's classic. I want to encourage you to read First and Second uh, uh, Kings and First and Second Samuel. It, it's an amazing, amazing story. Saul is the very first king of Israel. He is a Benjamite. He didn't necessarily want the job, but he had the natural ability to do it. Saul was anointed king. The great prophet Samuel sought the Lord, sought him out. They knew that it was time for them to, in essence, try this king thing out. Last week, Pastor Michael was, was teaching on, on Samson from the book of Judges. And Judges is a, it's a cycle of 
of sin, of God saving them and raising up a great leader, and then them falling back into sin again. And at the end, and one of the consistent themes is, is that in those days, Israel had no king, and people just did whatever they wanted to do. They had priests, they had the Torah, they had the law, but they had no king, and they just did whatever they wanted to do. And so again, Saul is raised up to be this very first king, and he is actually chosen and anointed by God. The Spirit of God literally falls on Saul. They pour oil over his head. It becomes a very powerful symbol of his authority given by God. And yet, in short, Saul is a bad, evil man. He does good things here and there. He follows the Lord once in a while. But overall, if you look at his track record, he's, he's just a bad, he's a bad character. He relies on witchcraft. He literally murders God's priests. And probably his biggest sin of all is that he is a prideful man. His pride is evident. He wears it on his sleeve. You can always tell a prideful man by looking at their insecurities. He's a very insecure man. He was insecure about his coordination. He was insecure about being around David. He was insecure about what God was commanding him to do. And because of his insecurity, because he allowed the judgment of men to rule and push and dictate his life, rather than the judgment of God, well, his story ends in tragedy. And then, after about 40 years of leadership, of not leading well, you know the story. God raises up another leader, and this is the great figure of David. David is, he's going to be the newly anointed king. He is picked out of eight sons of Jesse from, ready, from the tribe of Judah. Jesse presents only seven of his sons, all of whom seemed that they would make a good king, and the ruddy, redhead, younger son is out tending the sheep, and God says, there's another one, Samuel, and you need to find him. So David is a very big deal. He is a shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah, and more importantly, you have to get this, he is a man after God's own heart. He's a big deal. We learn a lot about ourselves from this story of David. We learn a lot about God from David's expressions in his Psalms. We would not have the richness of our faith if David had not illustrated to us how to cry out to God, how to say, I have come before you with a broken and contrite heart. Search me and my ways. David knows the secret of repentance. He knows that he has fallen and he puts his complete trust in, he has a personal relationship with Yahweh and he is 100% submitted to him. So let's get into the great classic 
story. Let's go back to Sunday school. Let's go back to the felt board. David is a young shepherd boy, and uh, he is he he tends his father's flocks and he protects his sheep. He per, he literally protects his flock from bears and lions and tigers. Okay, maybe not tigers, but he protects his sheep. And he's known to have killed the lion and the bear by himself. And so David, the shepherd boy, he is curious about what is taking place with Saul as the enemies of God are confronting God's children on the battlefield. The great people have invaded Israel, the Philistines. The Philistines were the ancient version of the Vikings. They were a, an annoying people who would come in and they would raid and rob and uh, they would load up all your TVs on their ships and then they would take off before you got your military together. Uh, they're known as the Sea People. And they had set up shop on five major cities inside of Israel. Gath, Ashkelon, Ekron, and I forgot the other one. But anyway, um, they, were, they had a very strong hold. They were a stumbling block for Israel. They should not have been allowed to come in and to take territory, and yet they did, and here they are. And so you know the story. It is the Philistines against the Israelites, and they eat, and the, the Philistines su submit a champion, and his name is Goliath. David kills Goliath. David said to Saul, David goes into the camp to bring his his brothers some lunch. Of course, they mock him, so David has to fight his brothers. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So this is a little boy saying, let's just not let this guy scare us. Your servant will go in and fight this Philistine champion. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear with this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defiled the armies of the living God. The Lord who has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will be delivered from me, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul is actually encouraging David to do this. And then Saul dressed David up in his tunic and he put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened his sword over his tunic and he tried walking around and he could not because he was not used to Saul's armor. I cannot go in these, he said, because I'm not used to them. And so he took them off and then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from around the stream and he put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile the Philistine with his shield bare in front of him kept coming closer to David and he looked at David, he looked him over and he saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome and despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? 
that you come at me with sticks? Here, let me try this again. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? <laughs> Sorry. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he said, come here. I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, Come against me with sword and spear and javelin, and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. It's a vision. It's a very clear vision. He knows exactly what he's going to do, and you know the rest of the story. He clearly does it. So it's just awesome. So David goes in and he picks up five stones, five smooth river rocks from a granite creek. And he only uses one. One is all that he needs, but he has this resource of five stones. There's something very important about the number five. I don't want to get into no numerology of any sort, but usually five is uh, the number of resources. Later, David is going to seek the priest for resources, and he asks for five loaves of bread. There are five books of the law. So this is, a no this is an important number for a resource that God wants to provide him, and, and God wants to provide you resources. What are they? We'll get to that in a minute. But David, with one shot of his sling, he literally kills a nine-foot giant and then goes up, takes the giant's sword away from him, and chops this guy's head off with his own sword. It's awesome. Now, that's usually where we leave the story in Sunday School with the felt board. After that, David is celebrated and he goes into the camp carrying the head of Goliath. And then he goes to the celebration party dragging this thing around. It's a little gross, but that's just what happens. I guess it's his trophy. It's his award. But yeah, a preteen kid carrying around someone's head is not something that uh, we would want our kids to do these days. David, because of his boldness, because of his courage, because of he submitted to the Lord, because he learned how to fight battles before he entered into the field of battle, is raised up and finds God's favor. Now here's an interesting point that we need to learn from the, the classic David and Goliath story. The David and Goliath story is actually etched into our collective consciousness. We love a good underdog story. We love it when the little guy defeats the giant, when the small business owner is able to get one over on a big giant uh, global corporation, when the little guy wins. It, this, it, it, there's just something about it that we love. And, and again, it's modeled in this story of David and Goliath. And there's a few things that we can learn from this on our own personal lives. Does God want you to defeat giants in the public field? I believe that he does. And you can. 
So what are your giants? Now it might not be a big giant ugly Philistine, but what are the giants in your life? Is it your finances? Is it a relationship? Is it your career path? Is it um, that sale? Is it accomplishing your degree? What are your giants? What are the things that you are afraid of? And God wants you to win in the public. He wants you to kill giants. But before you do that, you have to fight a bear in private and kill a lion in your own time. And as illustrated in the story, <coughs> excuse me, you might even have to fight your own brothers. But you win God's favor before you display the favor of God in front of others. Very important key to consider. So David is, he is raised up. He is elevated. He rises through the ranks to the point where he is being considered as the right-hand man of Saul. And this is where we see Saul get really insecure because David is... Like he, everybody loves David because he's brave and handsome and, and dashing and such. And so, Saul, because of his bad choices, because of his insecurities, because of his pride, he falls. Some say, some passages say that his armor bearer ran him through with the spear, and others say that he fell on his own sword. The point is, is his life ended tragically. And David is, through a series, he is the next in line. And David, like Saul, is anointed as king. Now, he was anointed as a boy at first, but then he comes into his coronation. And he does a lot of good things. But he also does some very bad things. David uh, not only has a heart for the Lord, he's got a heart for other things as well. And, well, he makes some very bad decisions. David, David fails. He, he falls from grace. His failures are so bad that they would be on par with some of the dirtbags that we see in the news today. Guys that abuse their power, that abuse the weak. David turns out to be an abuser himself. David is an adulterer, a murderer, a traitor to his own people. But God judges him. There is no greasy grace for David. That despite his character flaws, he is our hero and he is our giant of faith. David's son doesn't fare much better, Solomon. The wise Solomon, he writes some of the most profound wisdom literature in the scriptures. It's almost as it's coming from God's, well it is, it's divinely inspired. It's coming from God's own hand. Solomon is anointed, and yet the seduction of power and of foreign gods creeps into his heart, and 
he literally sells his anointing for flashy gods. The de next generations of kings, they fare no better. Uh, shortly after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. Now we have a kingdom of Judah and a kingdom of Israel, and those kings fare no better. Uh, Josiah is pretty good. Hezekiah is not bad. But for the most part, none of them really follow God's will. So what's the difference between King Saul, the first anointed king, whose God's hand was on him, and King David? What's the difference? Well, it's this. Saul had a, had a heart for his own life. David, as the scriptures tell us, David had a heart after God's own heart. But they both failed. So why do leaders fail? Why do we fail? In our days, peace, priests and pastors, it seems like they are failing daily. Presidents and politicians fail quite often. Moms and dads blow it daily. Why do we fail? This is in your handouts. This is in your notes. We fail because of our eyes. Our eyes are looking at the world and not on God. We fail because of what we are looking at. And usually our eyes, when we fail, are looking at the world and what the world has to offer. And our hearts, your next fill in, our hearts are not with the Lord. Because our eyes are looking at the world and our hearts are not for the Lord. The scripture and story in 1 Samuel 16 illustrates this best. This is when Samuel was trying to find David, the new anointed king. He had to pick him out of, again, eight sons. Only seven showed up. And he's looking at all of these guys, and they all look really good. But God told Samuel, looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with the way these guys look or how tall they are. God judges a person differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face, but God looks into the heart. When it comes to talking about one's heart and making it better, this is something that I cannot teach into. I cannot pastor you to, to have a better heart. I literally can't disciple your heart. You either have a heart for the Lord or you don't. If you do, then that heart can be discipled. If you don't, good news is, if you are watching this either in the sanctuary or online, chances are you have a heart after God's own heart. Hearts. You're a little bit like David. Or maybe you're a lot like David. 
Having a heart after God's own heart is indicated by how we respond to Jesus. And particularly, if you have a heart like David, you are going to have that personal relationship with Jesus and be completely submitted to him. You are going to see Jesus as king. And so how, if you have a heart after God's own heart, the response is you're going to be drawn to Jesus as Lord and King of your life. So how should we respond to King Jesus? Your feelings and your notes. First, with worship and adoration. Despite David and his character flaws, this guy knew how to worship the Lord. His psalms are filled with worship and, and poem and, and praise. He gets the importance of worshiping God and in this heart position of adoration, he has an awe and a respect for the Lord. It is this same heart posture that the Magi have when they too are on in search for King Jesus as a baby. They tell Herod, we, we want to know where this child is so that we may worship him and they adore him. They adorn him with gold, frankincense, and more. Myrrh. Second, with humble dependence. Although David had a lot of incredible skills and ability, he positioned himself to be humble and to be completely dependent upon God and for God's resources. He knew that the Lord was the source of everything in his life. We only receive this blessing of salvation through Jesus alone. And so therefore, we ought to be completely dependent upon him. And third, with gratitude and a thankful heart. David is constantly writing about being coming into God's presence with thanksgiving. He has a grateful heart. Even despite the hard times, he thanks God for what God has done. Now, there's a lot of things that I am thankful for in my own life. Even though I got this head cold, this summer cold, and maybe something worse, who knows. I'm grateful and thankful that God has healed my body in many times, and I'm believing and declaring that I'm just going to come out of this and I'm going to be just fine. I'm thankful and grateful for every time God has broken through and answered prayer in, in my life. I'm grateful and thankful for the provision that he provides, sometimes miraculously. I am grateful and thankful for the restored relationships throughout my entire walk with the Lord. I see his hand moving in personal relationships. But the number one thing that I am grateful for, and I am thankful for, is that God saved someone like me. Remember, Jesus is a king who humbled himself to become a servant so that he could save us. Uh, I am so grateful that he did that for you and that he did that for me. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 describes these three things beautifully. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God 
accepting with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now in this beautiful story of the monarchy, the united monarchy, the, this Camelot tale, which is again a masterpiece, the unsung hero, the one that we really need to be looking up to if we want to we want to keep score is Prince Jonathan. Prince Jonathan, Saul's son. If anyone deserves to be king by his actions and his bravery, it's Jonathan. If anyone had the right, the legal right to be king by hereditary, it's Jonathan. And if anyone earned the right to sit on that throne based off of merit, it's Jonathan. He was a great guy, but he was not anointed for that job. So this is what you need to know in Sunday school today. Being anointed, having the anointing of God, maybe a particular anointing or a calling, when God empowers you, it's not based on merit. It's not an award for your character, for being a good boy or a good girl. Being anointed is God's grace and power being reflected off of your heart, your heart for God. Your heart that is after God's own heart. When you have a heart that is after God's own heart, when you have that mystery, then God's grace pours out on it. And again, it reflects and you see the gold of your anointing. So who are your giants? What is your calling? Are you functioning under your anointing? As we close, uh, as we said at the beginning, there's going to be a second offering, and this is a seed offering. We need to be doing this in this season because we have two major outreach events that are actually expressions of worship. And I'm asking you to sow spiritual seed into, in these two events. The first is coming up, which is our Harvest Festival. We call it Fall Into Fun. It is... Uh, used to call it the Halloween alternative, but Halloween was a holy day too. But there's something very important about celebrating and having these festivals. Actually, the Bible is full of festivals. And so I want you to consider you're sowing into this, again, we call it fall into fun, but this new moon festival. It's so vital that, that we celebrate the seasons and that our celebration is an outreach into our community. Many of you might be sitting in this auditorium because you brought your kids or your grandkids to ride a pony and play some games and eat some candy at Fall Into Fun. There's something sacred about that celebration. I want to encourage you to sow into it because if it's not, we won't be able to do it this year. And then the second great expression of worship and outreach evangelism in our church is the living nativity boldly declaring the virgin birth and the divinity of jesus inside the city of claremont and ministering to our local communities 
We have been doing this for over 20 years. Many of you have come and have made Granite Creek your home because of living nativity. Many of you have served nativity over the years. This worship of King Jesus needs to take place, but again, it can't take place unless you sow into it with seed. We frankly, we just don't have enough resources to keep the lights on and to do these outreach events at the same time. I don't know why, but our offering income is down over last year. Last year, we were in the middle of the pandemic. Everything was online, and yet our offerings were better. I don't know what's going on now, but I am asking you to be faithful in the tithe and sow into a seed offering during this season so that we can be a light to our community, that we can be a blessing to our cities. At this moment, Pastor Larry is going to come on up to the front and he is going to receive the second offering. And if you're wondering what these rocks are up here on the stage, well, those are the Ebenezer's from our leadership meeting from last week. I, I told the people that showed up that I was going to give them a stone, a memorial stone um, for, the, for their family. And so if you were there last week and if you signed that list and uh, uh, if you want your Ebenezer, you can just come up after the service. Your family name is on a rock with a very particular scripture that I believe God gave me for you. And so these are your prophetic stones. So go up, come on up and get your prophetic stone. And if you're part of the Grant Creek's family, and if you want an Ebenezer, if you want a prophetic stone, I'll make you one too. They're really fancy. Uh, but I'd love to do that for you. This, all you got to do is let me know on the connection card or uh, just drop us a line and I'll, I'll make sure you get one too. And you can come and pick it up next week. All right, God bless you guys. Pastor Larry, come on up.